As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I highly doubt I'm the first person to tell you that we live in a highly globalized world and that one country's domestic politics today can wildly change your own country's domestic politics tomorrow. And yes, whilst the big players of the United States, China and the EU do technically have the ability to hamper your economy with a stroke of a pen, those large countries also tend to move pretty slowly. And for the most part, usually drift toward the status quo rather than big radical changes. It's a fairly safe bet that we'll wake up tomorrow morning and the United States will still be a country. See, rather than the big powers, it's often the middle powers that have the greatest potential for causing cross-border chaos. Things like Russia invading Ukraine or Austria-Hungary walking into Serbia. But I would argue that the country with the highest potential combination of political instability and day-to-day international reliance would be by far the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. To give you an example of what I'm talking about here, let's go back to September 2019, where a small aerial drone was launched from war-torn Yemen into Saudi Arabia, with the drone going on to strike the Saudi oil facilities at Abqayak in the north. The actual damage from the attack was fairly minimal, the breakages were repaired quickly, and to all of those in the know, it seemed very likely it was a one-off strike. But with all that in mind, even here, in Australia, a country that doesn't buy any Saudi oil, 10,000 kilometers away, this singular, small, easily repaired strike pushed up our petrol price by 20 cents a litre, or 56 cents a gallon for the US. A roughly 15% jump in the price because of a single strike at a single facility in a country we don't do business with So with that in mind, what do you think would happen if the entire country of Saudi Arabia fell apart overnight? If every oil field went offline in the space of a couple of days? It's hard to really know how bad it would get, but I shudder to even think about it. But as intrusive a thought as that is, we probably should have that conversation. As this Saudi Arabian basket, in which we've all placed a huge amount of eggs, may not be as stable as we once thought. Just for starters, let's put aside the fact that there seems to be factional wars brewing within the Saudi royal family all the signs of increased pushback from the Shia communities within Saudi Arabia, or the fact that now that the JCPOA has been torn up, Iran is free to build a nuclear weapon. Let's put all of those huge issues aside and just pose one real scenario to demonstrate how fragile the situation is. See, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, although being the 12th largest country in the world by land area, has no internal waterways, with the Saudis completely relying on desalination plants, facilities that turn seawater into drinking water, to supply the entire country with usable drinking water. And with that, let's add on the fact that they only have a strategic water reserve of 12 to 14 days, and no way of quickly or safely pumping water into the country within that time period. So if these desalination plants stop working, they have just two weeks until the country goes dry, and people can't live without water. Now come to the realization that many Saudi defense analysts do that all of Saudi Arabia's desalination facilities on the East Coast are well within range of airstrikes, naval strikes, and medium-range missiles coming out of Iran. And all of the desalination plants on the West Coast 
are in range of the missiles that the Houthis currently possess. The Houthis being the group that the Saudis have been bombing relentlessly for almost a decade now. Iran lives with the reality that Iran could quite easily hit half or even all of the Saudi Arabian desalination and oil production facilities, and that that horrifying doomsday scenario is well within Tehran's military capabilities. And when I posed this scenario to three senior defense analysts off the record, all three of them gave the variations of we know, and the only thing the Saudis could really do is pick up and move everyone out of the country until the water facilities are fixed. Obviously, this is a bit of a worst-case scenario, but also one I think we have to realize isn't completely out of the scope of reality. Saudi Arabia is a huge hinge point for global geopolitics, and with the entire world economy relying on the stability of Saudi Arabia, we're watching the entire control of this kingdom fall to just one singular man, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So is he actually up to the task? Does he have a plan if things go sour with the Iranians? And can he tackle the cultural issues present within Saudi Arabia? Like keeping the younger generation in the country happy with liberalization without also alienating and creating resentment with the older generations? Is MBS capable of keeping this very full basket full of everybody's eggs from tumbling onto the ground? What we'll a answer that. We turn to our first guest. Part 1 The Saud in the Stone. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There is an element of liberalization in the sense that the social life is being liberalized. I mean, you're talking about people going to bars. I mean, yes, they may be going to bars, but as far as I know, bars are not yet serving alcohol. Social life in the sense of mixed groups, uh, men and women of different ages can go around to a whole a host of entertainments. And one of the things that have been developed in the last five or six years is a vast range of entertainments, everything from football to boxing to, to car races. To, so there's a massive amount of entertainment of all types that is emerging in and that has been emerging for the last four or five years. Mixed socialising, which was obviously impossible 10 years ago. Is, is now a regular normal feature. You know, women can drive, women can walk around without wearing abayas. All this kind of thing is happening. So, you know, social life liberalization is certainly a, a, a new feature and a big change. But in terms of, for example, political situation, it's much more repressive than it ever has been. Many people I've spoken to suggest that the level of repression today is worse than ever. Helen Lackner 
is one of the most celebrated writers on the subject of golf geopolitics. She was also a visiting fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations and a research associate at the SOAS University of London. She's also a regular contributor to Open Democracy, the Arab Digest, and Oxford Analytica, and has written a number of fantastic books on the subject of golf geopolitics, including the famous Yemen in Crisis. And we're thrilled to have her back on the program today. To just take the very simple example of the issue of women, you know, women can now drive, women can get jobs, they can walk around without, without you know, head scrubs, and even, I think, without abayas, and all this kind of thing. But the women who initiated these movements... Uh, 10 years ago, have been locked up, tortured, and ill-treated. And the few who have been released are now under house arrest, you know, banned from travel. So, you know, what you have is a social liberalization, but a political repression, which is greater, I think, than it's ever been in the past. And basically, you cannot do or say anything that might conceivably be regarded as... Uh, not totally supportive of the moves of Mohammed bin Salman, no, commonly known as MBS, without taking very serious risks. And people have been locked up and imprisoned and sent, given the most ridiculous sentence. When people think about Saudi Arabia, they're quite often compared to the United Arab Emirates on the northeastern border or Qatar on their northern border, as all three of these nations have quite a lot in common. All three of them are Gulf monarchies. All three of them have some historic ties to the British. And all three of them make most of their money from oil and gas. Yet, all three have very different reputations, particularly with Western travelers. So can you take us through how and why there is this divergence between Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Qatar as well? In terms of fundamental differences, they're, you know, they're considerable. Qatar has, you know, 3 million people of whom about 300,000 are locals. Emirates has 10 million of whom maybe 2 million are locals or maybe probably less, uh, Saudi has uh, 34, 35 million, of whom uh, a full two-thirds are Saudi. So although you have 10 million foreign workers in they're actually no, not the majority. Uh, they used to be long ago, but not now. So that's one of the big differences. Another difference, of course, is that Saudi Arabia is a very large country and is fundamentally much more powerful than any of the others, partly because of its demography, because of its geographical size, and, of course, because of its finances. So although uh, the Emirates is quite... um, you know, extremely wealthy and and Qatar in terms of per capita income is by far the wealthiest. You know, Saudi is a really different ball game. I mean, it is actually a real substantial large country. To insert a bit of context here, as I think it's quite important for perspective, when it comes to nominal GDP levels, so an economy overall, the Saudis are ranked 18th largest in the world, just above that of the Netherlands, with the UAE coming in at 32, Qatar at 55, and Yemen all the way down there at 110, just above Zambia. Although this is complicated further when we compare population levels, with Qatar's population around 3 million and the Emiratis at 7 million, which is in stark contrast to the Saudis at 35 million and the Yemenis at 31 million, which when we move to GDP per capita, really starts to show some of these stark contrasts present here. When it comes to GDP per capita, the Qatar rises to 4th in the world, the UAE rises to 7th, and the Saudis drop to 27th just above that of Israel. But they're still markedly better than the Yemenis, which drop even further to 179th, just above that of Sierra Leone. So in short, these three Gulf states have very large economies, but unlike Qatar or the UAE, 
Saudi Arabia has to spread that money across far more people than the other two. The, the sort of emergence of Saudi Arabia as a sort of hub of greenwashing in sports and of tourism is, you know, is very, very recent and it's not actually effectively materialized yet as far as I know in the sense that you don't have, you know, large numbers of people going there. And that may well be the case in the future in Saudi, but as far as I know, it isn't the case yet. So why would Saudi Arabia be looking to change their image from a golf monarchy petrostate to hoping to market themselves as a green technology hub? Is MBS doing this out of the goodness of his own heart, or is there an ulterior motive here? Well, MBS is most certainly not a nice guy. I think that is absolutely clear. But he certainly has a totally different vision from his predecessors. The first thing to remember is that the guy is very young. And his perspective on the world is really totally different from that of his uh, elderly relatives or indeed a lot of other people in the family. And, you know, he's very much influenced by science fiction and various other cultures which are really very different from those of most politicians in any form or shape. He's not in any way a traditional politician. So in practice, he's very, very autocratic and has a very small group of people around him who basically do what he says and who may or may not, whom he may or may not listen to. But uh, as a general rule, he's, um, he's bringing in a vision which is, I'd say, not just unrealistic in terms of Saudi Arabia. It's simply not clearly relating to, to the world that the rest of us live in. So I think to get a better idea about who MBS or Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, is, I think we should unpack him a little further. This is a man whose rise to the top pretty seemingly came out of nowhere. So can you take us through who MBS is and why he became the chosen crown prince? Now, the supplier of brothers of the previous king was, based, the king was basically running out given that the grandfather died in 1953. So there were basically only two potential successors in the, in the brotherly line. And people have been talking about transferring to you know, a second generation for, for at least 10 or 15 years and expecting this to happen sooner or later. But basically, people were expecting it to move from the generation of the sons of Abdulaziz to the son, generation of of their sons, i.e. Abdulaziz's grandsons. What happened is that Salman, when he got the job in 2015, basically after the death of Abdullah, is that he skipped that generation and immediately gave the Ministry of Defence job to Mohammed, who's not actually even his eldest son, but he is definitely his favourite son. And there's been quite a lot of analysis of the fact that he had been kind of, if not grooming him for the job, certainly preparing him in the sense that Mohammed was present in, you know, a lot of meetings that were held by his father when he was governor of Riyadh. So, you know, he was clearly his favourite son. So that's why he first got the job of Minister of Defence. He couldn't immediately make him crown prince because that really would have pushed things a bit too far in relation to the family. So the, the crown prince remained for a while, Mohammed bin Nayef, who again was that same generation, a grandson as opposed to great-grandson. Basically, that was a move that in a way now in retrospect signaled what happened later. And what uh, Salman has done uh, with 
the help of MBS has been to transfer from a, a line and from a group leadership where basically all the closest direct descendants of King Abdulaziz had a strong say and there was a kind of collegial leadership in the country, turning it into very much a straight line from Salman and his sons. And the, the result of that is we now have three of the brothers who are ministers. I mean, you have, you have Crown Prince MBS, you have his brother Khaled, who's Minister of Defense, and another one who I think is Minister of Energy. So you have basically a moving into a vertical line as opposed to a sort of wavy line that you had before. And what MBS has done has been completely ruthlessly eliminating everybody who was competing him and around him. So when, when he took over the crown prince job from his cousin, he promptly put the cousin in prison and he's now, you know, has not been heard from for a long, long time now. And he's very much suppressed any role of the rest of the family except the people from a younger generation and in less senior positions. Retaining the main positions, him and his uh, brothers as uh, sons of Salman. It seems obvious that MBS was being groomed for this role. And to get his name and face out there, he was given the role of defence minister. And upon taking the role, he sought to further build up his profile by launching a quick war to crush the Yemenis and remove the potentiality of an Iran-friendly threat on the Saudi southern flank. That war, though, to put it mildly, was an absolute disaster, dragging on for years and leaving the Saudis with a damaged reputation, a broken military, and in a worse position than when they started with when it comes to Iranian influence in the Gulf. So how did the fallout from the war in Yemen not cattle MBS's rise to power? Is it the fact that the average Saudi doesn't think very much about the war in Yemen, or did he somehow manage to pass off the blame? Why didn't the failures here prevent his rise to power? It was his initiative. If anyone else had been in power, certainly any of the older generation, they would not have got directly involved in Yemen in the way that MBS did. I mean, he started that involvement very much on the assumption that having all this massive, ultra-sophisticated weaponry from US, France, Britain, and anyone else who cared to sell it to him, plus the training, plus the millions that they'd spent on this, that it was supposed to be a sort of blitzkrieg that would end in a matter of weeks, if not days, with the instant, total, and utter surrender of the Houthis. It's pretty obvious eight years later that that hasn't happened. So he was hoping to use that as a, as a stepping stone to improve his status and become the obvious great leader for the future. I think, you know, he obviously miscalculated. The extent to which the mess in Yemen or the quagmire in Yemen has affected his reputation is, I think there was a time when it certainly did and it had the hint to do this, particularly when the oil prices were lower and various uh, subsidies to the population were being cancelled or reduced. You now have a situation where basically, and I think that was always the case, the vast majority of Saudis know little and care less about what's happening in Yemen. Though they do, I mean, they are aware of Yemen in a way they're not necessarily aware of other countries. And what's happened this year is with the, you know, with the truce and the formation of this new uh, leadership council in Yemen, I think he's presenting himself as the man who ended the war in Yemen and solved the problem. Uh, the problem isn't solved, but for the, the Saudis, you know, the only real direct impact other than financial was the occasional, you know, missiles and drones that the Saudis were lobbing across the border. 
of which there were very few compared to how much Saudis were bombing Yemen. This has now not happened. We are in a situation where there hasn't been any cross-border action on either side. So MBS is saving money by no longer spending massive amounts on bombing. And he also can claim that the war is ended because no missiles or drones have come across coming from the Houthis. And he's focusing on other things. I mean, his, his grandiose plans and all the sports are basically far higher on his agenda now than Yemen is. Saudi Arabia often touts itself as the centre of Sunni Islam. And in contrast, Iran often crowns themselves as a centre of Shia Islam. And one of the major issues surrounding Yemen is that many Saudis worry that the Shia Muslims that make up the Houthi rebels in Yemen could be the tip of the Shia spear against Saudi Arabia. But now that the Houthis are occupied on the other side of the Saudi border, and an invasion into Saudi Arabia seems unlikely, some seem to be patting themselves on the back. But others would point out that 15% of Saudi Arabia's population is Shia, with these groups mostly concentrated in the south near the border with Yemen, or in the east where the majority of Saudi Arabia's oil is. So as much as Saudi Arabia is a majority Sunni country, the majority of its oil sits within territories that are largely Shia. With the Saudis having been so antagonistic to Shias in Iran and abroad for so long, how do they view the very large Shia populations residing within their own borders? Now that uh, MBS is supposedly introducing a moderate Islam and is reducing the sort of Wahhabi and the Salafi tendencies or you know, power of in, within the country. I think he's trying to reduce the level of unpleasantness that the Shia have been suffering from. But at the same time, and I think since 1979 and throughout, there's a high level of suspicion, but, you know, given the, the relationship with Iran of, you know, are, are, the, are the Shia seen as sort of a fifth column for the Iranians? And that's particularly true for the Shia in the eastern region, which is the main oil-producing region, because you also have a number of, of Shia in the southwest, uh, which is near the Yemeni border, and th- those are probably less seen as a threat. But the ones in the, in the northeast are perceived as a potential threat, and I'm sure they're under very, very heavy surveillance. Not that anyone in Saudi is not under careful surveillance. As long as the problem with Iran persists, suspicion of the Shia remains. With the FIFA World Cup kicking off next door in neighbouring Qatar, Doha has seen a lot of international attention brought down upon the Qataris' treatment of workers, although many of the accusations being thrown at Qatar are not limited to them. Can you take us through the Saudi Arabian kafala system and how it compares to the one we're seeing in Qatar? The Qataris have had a really very, very bad deal on this one because... The kafala system, which I'll explain in a moment, is basically the same everywhere in the region. I mean, throughout the, the Gulf and even exists in places like Lebanon. And the system is the same everywhere. But the big difference is that the Qataris are the only ones who actually took action to improve living conditions for their workers, to improve, you know, to change the law. They in, invo- invited the ILO to open an office, so International Labour Organization, to open an office in Doha. And they've made a lot of reforms and a lot of improvements in the treatment of, uh, of workers. And I'm sure it's not perfect and there have been some justified criticisms, but I think they're really getting a, a very rough deal. 
So it's important to point out that the, the Gataris and the working and improvement of conditions in Gatar are far greater than anywhere else in the peninsula. The kafala system is very simple. A national basically can sponsor a foreigner to come and work in the country. And once the foreigner who is sponsored is basically under the authority of the sponsor who can take and does in most cases take his or her passport, who is responsible for paying him or bringing him or her in, who can prevent him or her from leaving the country because he or she has to authorize the person to apply for an exit visa. And in many cases, they take a share of their income. So if the foreign worker is working directly for his or her sponsor, then that person has the power to control the salaries and to pay or not pay. There's lots and lots of complaints of salaries not being paid and to control living conditions. What also happens is you have people who sponsor a number of workers who don't necessarily work for them, but who, for example, work as taxi drivers, so they will earn their own income they won't have their own car, but they'll have to repay a certain percentage to the sponsor on a monthly basis. So it's basically a source of income for nationals without doing much, or in fact, doing extremely little. And that's one reason why the system is quite popular with nationals, because the less wealthy nationals derive a significant part of their income from this. And the system, of course, is open to massive abuse and is. And that was the main criticisms of it, because... Effectively, the workers are indentured labourers. They and there's many, many cases of ill treatment. There's cases of non-payment of salaries. There's cases of expulsions without salaries. Clearly, thoroughly obnoxious system, basically. On top of the rich and poor divide, or the Sunni Shia divide, there's also a somewhat distinct divide between the urban and rural populations, or between the modernised and ancient cities. Can you take us through some of these cultural fault lines present within the Saudi society? You don't have that much of a rural-urban divide, mainly because you don't have that many rural people left in the country. What you do have are some differences between the more traditionally conservative areas like the far north and Riyadh and the traditionally more liberal, in quotation mark, areas such as Jeddah on the Red Sea or the far east, the far northeast, which are the, basically the oil-producing cities where most, of the, where most of the Shia lived, but where really the cultural influence in the last 50 years has derived from the kind of American-style oil-producing cities that were built in those regions which have, you know, where the geography and the layout actually have influenced the way people behave. Uh, what is happening, I think, now is that you do have a divide between those people who continue to uphold these values if you realise that the, the young people, their parents, their grandparents, were all brought up within those, uh, those constraints and many of them believe it on the one hand and the others who have the more liberal sort of Western-oriented culture who are more determined and keen on enjoying the cultural liberalism, you know, the, the access to mixed meetings, dancing, clubs, talking, sports events, etc., that is, I'd say, the, the new sort of cultural divide that you're having. And uh, the first one, of course, the, the conservative one, is now very heavily suppressed. So people do not uh, claim that they uphold it because of the other aspect I explained of the, you know, the Saudi regime being extremely repressive at the moment. 
the, the the pressure for change at the in terms of daily behavior and culture has been reduced basically by the liberalization element but the total absence of any freedom of expression basically that you now have is something that must be upsetting a lot of people including those people who were supporters of the much more conservative system who are now basically find that customs and the behavior have changed significantly or at least they, they accept the promoted behavior has changed significantly and that all the things that they were told were really important are now completely ignored and and suppressed so i think you probably have a fairly significant underground or um, not underground in the sense that it's active but sort of incipient the disagreement with the regime but the level of repression is so strong that people are really very very careful and there's nothing or extremely little that would be going that would be actually going on in terms of any attempts to have even groups or societies or anything promoting changes and not supporting the official line this is a that de- very definitely a, a regime transformation you no know, and it's imposed on a society with whom many people are happy about this change but i think at least as many people are unhappy about the change because they believe in the salafi ideology that was proposed to to, to them for their for generations really in some pretty crazy hypothetical let's say mbs bonks his head tomorrow coming out of the shower and announces to the world that he will be ending the monarchy and having democratic elections within a month. Who do you think would be the most likely faction to tank over if there were democratic elections in Saudi Arabia? The problem is that there have never been political parties allowed to operate in Saudi Arabia. There have never been any political organizations allowed to operate in Saudi Arabia. So there's no actual tradition of this. If you look at the Saudi structure is it claims to be operating on a tribal basis and when you look at the what little there's been in the way of elections for local governments it's been community and tribal leaders who have you know who've got elected basically by virtue of being those community and those family leaders so I I think you know if something happened like this overnight the most likely outcome would be that different factions from the royal family would be able to gain something and possibly some of the regional forces that have been suppressed over the many decades so you'd have you know important families or groups from say the hits in jeddah or from the eastern region or from the north with very different views but i i think with the complete lack of history of political um debate in the country you know you couldn't just suddenly bring elections tomorrow and find people competing in an in an organized manner so if we're not expecting to see any structural change in the political system of Saudi Arabia we have to imagine MBS will be setting the national course for a while to come still in which case where do you see him taking Saudi Arabia over the next decade and by setting the national course for a decade do you think he sees himself as the country's single leader or possibly in the future something bigger something much more regional I think MBS is very ambitious there's no doubt that he sees himself as the next leader of Saudi Arabia he wants to transform Saudi Arabia into some kind of fantasy that really is very remote from reality or even possibility and i do think he also wants to be a, a regional leader i mean i think what's happening at the moment and the the incipient sort of competition with the, with the emirates in particular 
you know, is an indication of what uh, of of his future plans. So I think you know he sees Saudi Arabia as one of the future leaders of not just the region, but you know, on a world scale. I mean, they've recently shown interest in joining the BRICS group, which shows the level at which they perceive themselves, or that he perceives the country as really being, you know, thanks to its wealth, basically, as becoming a potentially very important decision-maker and influential state in the world. I think if you look at what happened at OPEC+, Plus, which, you know, you've probably seen the endless amounts of stuff about the Saudi-US uh, spat and the, those problems... Um, I don't think, you know, yes, you know, bringing the US down to scale is is probably one of his ambitions. But basically, his perception is that he wants Saudi Arabia to be an important state on the world's stage. And he sees himself as the person who will who will do that. So I suspect that his ambitions are quite considerable. And, you know, the guy's very young and assuming he doesn't get struck down by some disease or something else. He could be around for quite a long time. So it seems MBS, whether you love him or hate him, is here to stay, which means a singular man will be shaping the direction of the world's largest oil producer. So is he up to the task? How does MBS handle a crisis? Well, fortunately, we actually have a crisis with him at the helm that we can examine and take a look at. And that crisis is the Saudi invasion of Yemen. So let's look at this invasion. What happened, what went wrong, what went right, and whether we're likely to see the same kinds of mistakes being carried into the next crisis to crash upon the kingdom. How will MBS be leading Saudi Arabia? What will answer those questions? We turn to our second guest. Part 2. Failing the Test We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It was something of a surprise that Mohammed bin Salman, that his father actually became king. He was probably last or next to the last in the line of the people that were expected to become king. There was a whole bunch of people in front of him. Sultan bin Abdulaziz, the defense minister, there was Nayyip bin Abdulaziz, the Minister of the Interior, you could go down the list. But as the gerontocracy started dying off, Salman was the most acceptable of the ones that were left under Abdullah, and he became king. And he's had medical problems the whole time. And he elevated his son, which was a big surprise. Roby Barrett is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and a fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Forum at Cambridge University specializing in golf and regional security issues. He's a former foreign service officer with a background in intelligence and special operations. He's also a graduate of the Foreign Service Institute's intensive two-year Arab language and Middle East area studies program, and has a background including counterterrorism tactics and special operation courses. 
He was also a visiting professor at the Royal Saudi Arabian Command, specializing in Saudi Arabia's relationship with Yemen and Iran. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. It became apparent when Salman, through some rather interesting maneuvering as someone remove and or imprison all of the other alternatives, and so now he's crown prince and uh, prime minister. So he will likely become king. Now there's a debate over longevity, depending on who you're talking to and senior Western government analysts on this, but he will in all probability become king. And so that was a little bit of a surprise. What isn't a surprise, what's going on now, is the El Saud clan, which is a very, very large group, probably 9,000 princes. And this has grown and grown and grown over the last decades. From when uh, Ibn Saud, King Abdulaziz, died, the whole family was encased. In, uh, there was a deal where you were basically on a stipend, no matter who you are, whether you were one of the cadet branches or one of the His Royal Highness branches or whatever, there was basically a deal where everybody got paid off. But as that's progressed, that really has gotten too big. The, the, the number of El Sauds on the official government payroll and uh, with the stipend, some not, actually not doing anything productive, has grown to very, very large proportion. And so as a result, there had to be in this generation, when you went to the grandson of Abdulaziz, there had to be a downsizing of who was actually being paid by the government. And how rapidly is this transition taking place? There was always an assumption that it was going to be a rather gradual thing and it would be a consensus thing that would, would, that would happen. In other words, there would be a series of agreements between the big families, the Suderis, the Jewelis, and everybody else, the Rashid, everybody that was involved. And then they would gradually reduce that number simply because it was such a burden on the state. Well, Mohammed bin Salman came along and he's decided that it's going to be his line and he's trying to establish a line. In other words, after Abdulaziz, it was his sons that had this linear kind of one followed the other uh, as the monarch. And so now Mohammed bin Salman decided that it's his clan within the El Saud that is going to be the next ruling generation. And so the base for the El Saud rule was very, very broad. I mean, it was connected into everything. Well, suddenly Mohammed bin Salman's actions have narrowed it down and he's picked some people but they literally don't have the gravatus, if you will. A lot of the people that he's relied on in the family. And so his problem is establishing new rule, but also establishing a power base, a broad enough power base to secure it. And so as a result, I think we see a, a combination of factors. It's lack of experience on his part and absolute belief in his infallibility and overestimation of Saudi Arabia's power and actual influence. And all of this has come together with this downsizing effort. And so it's created a situation that while it is working now, it's potentially very volatile. This overestimation was on full display during the invasion of Yemen, where a war that was assumed to take no more than a few months ended up dragging off for years and costing billions. And even then, the Saudis never really achieved their aims of neutralizing the Houthi threat to the south. 
So how has the war in Yemen shaped the outlooks of the Saudi military? Have we seen a doctrinal shift? I spent two years in Yemen, and I taught a uh, course on Yemen at the Saudi War College. So I I can say this for certain. When the first large-scale intervention was occurring 2016, in that time frame, I wrote a white paper that was used. And uh, so the first line in it said, you can't win a ground war in Yemen. Absolutely impossible to win a ground war in Yemen. It's like being in a ground war in Afghanistan. How did that turn out? And we had tremendous capability and we really had hardcore troops. It's just impossible. You got 26 million people, you've got the mountains, you've got uh, incredibly tough terrain, et cetera. Yemen's the same way. You've got all of these tribal issues where one day someone might be on your side and the next day, who knows? And the Saudis really, as a, as a nation, if you've been on the dole and you've basically been dominated by the what we would call the rentier oil economy all of these years, and you put together a military, but it's never really been tested. The military's really never been tested in a straight-up fight where it had to do something. The, the White Paper basically said that the Saudis have no ability to do that on their own and that they would likely, they may be able to hold certain parts of the country simply because Yemen's so divided, so tribal, but as far as actually being able to force the uh, Zaydis or uh, the Zaydi re- revivalists uh, or who we commonly call the Houthis to either surrendering or coming to some sort of compromise, the odds of that happening were virtually zero. And uh, the odds of forcing them into a situation where they had to come to a compromise was virtually zero unless in combination the Saudis and the Emiratis somehow figured out how to take Hodeida and all of the coastal areas and isolate the Houthis in the upland where they would be forced to come to the table and reach some sort of compromise. And they weren't able to do it. The bottom line is that none of the interventionists, and they did the right thing, particularly in the South, because the South was predominantly, and the uh, Zaydis being kind of a third form of Shiism, this attempt to dominate them would have caused endless problems. So to have it separate south and north as it's always been, or, or and also the east, that's one thing. But to be in a situation where you are actually going to force the Zaydis in the north, the upland tribe, to come to some sort of compromise, you had to be able to cut them off from the sea, hold the coast, and basically maintain a tight blockade that forced them to the table. And to do that, you had to be able to mount complex operations. And neither neither the Saudis nor the Emiratis, but in particular the Saudis were up to it. The last time that happened, that happened in 1934. And Prince Faisal at the time came down the coast and took Hodeida and King the uh, Prince Saud, who later became king, and then Faisal became king after him. Prince Saud actually uh, tried to come down through the mountains via Marib, just like the uh, current approach is, and they failed. Saud totally failed. Faisal did not. Faisal managed to uh, take Odata 
and force a compromise with the, at that time, the Yemeni imam. But this inability to do that and real inability to take casualties, I mean, serious casualties, uh, because that's what it is. It's mountain fighting. The Yemenis are very adept in it. It's like uh, fighting the Afghan, uh, Afghan guerrillas. You just can't do it. And as a result, they find themselves in a stalemate. They find themselves with, depending on who you're talking to, say that the Saudis have in security people, talking about border patrol, military, everything. They have 50,000 people that are basically locked up on that border. And they're unable to make progress, unable to force the uh, Yemenis into a compromise. And as a result, they're looking for a way out because it, it's costing a lot of money and there's always the potential that it's also costing casualties. And, and even when we were helping them with tankers and stuff like that, you can't bomb these guys out of the cage. They're not going to give up. It's sort of like uh, the, the Saudi tactic was very, uh, very similar to the Russian tactic of shelling Ukrainian cities. Just because they're shelling the city doesn't mean anybody's going to give up and quit. It, it suddenly surrendered and say, oh, yeah, we've got to do this or we've got to do that. They, they're not going to do it. And so as a result, you're going to see this continue. The problems that we see now, you're going to see this continue until there's some sort of compromise that may not be palatable to uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Well, if the Saudis are having such a problem in Yemen here, and they are so highly averse to casualties, why wouldn't they hire someone like the Egyptians, for instance, to come and fight the Yemenis for them? Would Cairo be amenable to getting into that war if it meant financial gain for them? No, I don't think so at all. In fact, what the Saudis actually believed that they were gonna convince the Egyptians to come in, they were gonna pay the Egyptians money, and the Egyptians would come in and do the fighting to achieve their goals in Yemen. And that, the Egyptians in between 1962 and 1969, Yemen was literally Egypt's Vietnam, with as many as 50,000 dead, et cetera, et cetera, trying to pacify, pacify the uh, country. And in that same period of time, the Saudis were actually funding the Zaydis, now the equivalent of the Houthis, to fight the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were never able to conquer them. They were absolutely, you know, it just never worked. They bled them dry. And so the Egyptians took one look at this and said, you've got to be kidding. So the Saudis have been forced to fight this war themselves, but unlike the Egyptians back in the 60s, their equipment's a lot better. In fact, a lot of it's U.S. equipment. So why haven't the Saudis been successful in Yemen? As far as experience, combat experience and stuff, if you knew that you knew where your next meal was coming from and you were on a stipend and everything, you know, you, you had a life where you really didn't necessarily have to be productive at all. It's because of the, the payments and the stipends and everything flowing out of the oil money. How attractive is it going up in the mountains and having uh, getting yourself killed by a bunch of Yemeni tribesmen? Do you see what I'm saying? And so it really, the concept, most Arab militaries are there to protect the regime. And no matter what kind of equipment they have, et cetera, et cetera, 
in an offensive mode, there's not a lot of incentive for these guys to go out there and get themselves killed, nor is there a tremendous amount of capability to take that military and make it really operate, say, like a Western military. And so the Saudis are doing the right thing, and we're actually trying to help them extract themselves from this Yemen problem. And it's really interesting is, um, I, I was in Riyadh some years back and I was talking to an official and we were talking about uh, the Yemen border. And he commented on it because he, you have to remember that Najran and Asir, those two provinces, were a part of Yemen before 1934. And they were conquered by Saudi Arabia. And they've all, they were incorporated into Saudi Arabia and have been there. But ethnically and culturally, the people in those areas are more like Yemen or more like the Tahaman African slash Arab groups than they are like the Nejdi Arabs from around Riyadh or the, or the, the Hejazis from up around Mecca, Medina, and Jeddah. And so you have a potentially volatile situation because of the way the ethno-cultural and tribal breakdown is in the border area. And so it's really important that the Saudis manage to extract themselves, and not only that, but to stabilize that border situation. And they can't do it themselves. They can't do it themselves. They have to have our help in trying to negotiate something because there's a huge, huge chip on uh, the Yemeni shoulders. The, they never liked the Yemenis, never liked the Saudis very much. The Saudis always paid off the tribes and certain Yemeni leaders. And, you know, that would buy them something in the short term, but never over the long term. And now, after what's been going on, this error campaign, which what is there to bomb in Yemen? And you get down to the point where you're blowing up people's houses and every once in a while bombing a wedding or bombing a uh, school bus. It doesn't exactly endear you to anyone, nor does it make anyone really want to compromise with you. So it's becoming more and more important from a stability point of view for Saudi Arabia to be able to extract itself from this and stabilize that border area, come up with an agreement that stabilizes that border area. And in the end, to do this, they're going to have to pay out an enormous amount of money to the Yemeni tribes and to the Houthis themselves. And there'll probably be all sorts of demands for humanitarian help, et cetera, et cetera, which everything will be blamed on the Saudis for what happened there. Surely a white peace or a return to the status quo with Yemen can't work for Riyadh either as this would still keep an Iranian-backed Houthi force on their southern approaches, and may even embolden Tehran elsewhere. If the Saudis admit that they couldn't counter the Iranians at the IRGC here, what options do they actually have for countering Iranian influence in the Gulf? The driver behind the Saudi intervention in Yemen is this fear of Iranian growing Iranian influence within the context of this Zaidi revivalist movement. You know, there are multiple Shia offshoots. There are three fundamental kinds of uh, Shia, though. There are those that believe there are five imams, those that believe there were seven, those that believe there were 12. The Twelvers are the largest group. That's the Iranians, the Lebanese, uh, the Iraqis, uh, a lot of the Gulf Shia are Twelvers. One of the smaller groups is, uh, is the Fivers. 
and they believe there were only five. And so they're a little bit different. So it's not like it's not like they align exactly, but it was Saudi fear of Iranian influence in Yemen that drove the intervention. And this is admitted, a senior Saudi military officer talked about this. It's the Iran just saw a place to cause some trouble. Okay. It wasn't like they had a tremendous amount of influence, but they might fund some weapons. They would talk it up, but it was mostly to just cause trouble and anxiety in Riyadh. It's what it was about. But if you're obsessive about this, particularly in light of the fact that the oil produced, major oil producing provinces in Saudi Arabia in, in the Eastern province, the, one, the Shias are one of the predominant groups in the area. 10% of the population of Saudi Arabia is 12 or Shia. And so hyper paranoid about the Iranian threat about period and the Persian threat, they hyper paranoid about Homanism, which basically rejects monarchy as an Islamic form of government, hypersensitive about Yemen and the Yemen border anyway, because of issues that have always been down there dating from, you know, dating from the 30s, dating from the 20s and Abdullah diseases, right? So you put all of that together and the Saudis came to the conclusion that they had the wherewithal to take on the Yemenis and they flat, flat never did. This was never, the Saudis without massive backup. And even if we had joined, it would have been helped to help them. It would have been another Afghanistan. It would, it would have never ended. There would have been some kind of settlement at the end we would have withdrawn and Yemen would have gone back to being Yemen. And so we refused to put troops on the ground and uh, support them. They would have loved that, but there was no, there was no upside to it for anybody. And there was really no upside to it for them, but they went ahead with, uh, with the operation. It, right now, if there were a confrontation between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and we weren't standing there on the Saudi side. Who do you think would win? I mean, the Iranians would burn the Saudi oil fields with their drones and with their, before it even got started. I mean, seriously. And so Saudi Arabia is in a much weaker position than certainly Mohammed bin Salman wants to imagine. And we're just waiting. Uh, there'll, there'll be a realization at some point that, that this is a problem. And uh, frankly, I don't see any way to remedy that from an independent Saudi point of view. Strength that Saudi Arabia has from a defense point of view is that they're fully integrated. Their systems are American or, or in some cases, French or British. And they're fully integrated with the Western powers. So if we have to come in and assist them to protect the kingdom, like we did when Saddam Hussein threatened it, the equipment, the uh, maintenance, the everything associated with it is totally consistent with what the West is using. Uh, that's the real benefit of the Western arms they're buying, et cetera, et cetera. 
their ability to use them independently to go off and do something. I think Yemen is a really good example of it. They have fancy new fighters. They don't have an intelligent. They don't have the kind of intelligence uh, capability that allows them to strike the right targets or know what to do. They don't have the tanker capability to do it. We supplied all of that. And that's one of the things they're upset about that we pulled back in the last year or two uh, on that, because there's no conceivable way that this type of military campaign was going to be successful against the Houthis. And the only way that the Saudis are going to be able to extract themselves is in a compromised settlement with them. So what was the war in Yemen for? Well, supposedly, it was to counter the growing Iranian influence on the Gulf. But all the war has ended up doing is exacerbating the hatreds of the Saudis held by the Houthis and blasted the Houthis directly into Iran's arms. The nation of Iran and Saudi Arabia have now been competing for geopolitical influence throughout the Middle East. And yet Iran has seemingly bested them geopolitically in Iraq, Syria, and even Lebanon. On top of that, how is it that a nation under tremendous Western sanctions has an economy almost double the size of that of Saudi Arabia's? The Saudis seem to be throwing everything they can at the Iranians, but is any of it working? If the Saudis really see themselves as one of the main tent poles of the Middle East, they'll have to be at least able to compete with Tehran. So how do the Saudis hold up against the Iranians? And are the two of them simply destined for war? And what is the secret weapon Iran possesses that could render Saudi Arabia unlivable within a few hours. Well, to answer all that, we we'll turn to our third guest. Part three, accumulating antagonists. Saudi Arabia is a major power in the region, but it's also a divisive one. It has power in the region largely through being able to wield a lot of wealth. And of course, that always creates enemies as well as getting friends. It has some a global and regional influence through its leading role in Islam. But again, this is a double-edged sword because there are also many Muslims that don't fully agree with the way that Saudi Arabia represents Islam. Uh, and so I think this is something that's quite often misunderstood by Westerners who could often think that Saudi Arabia can bring the Muslim world along with it, when, of course, the Muslim world is not that simple. Jane Kinnanmond is the Director of Impact of the European Leadership Network. Jane was previously the Deputy Head and Senior Research Fellow at the Middle East and North Africa Program at Chatham House, where she led a research project on the generational change within the Gulf Arab monarchies and its impact on the Gulf relations with Iraq, Iran, and Yemen. In addition to this, Jane was also the Associate Director for the Middle East and Africa at The Economist Group, and Senior Editor and Economist at The Economist Intelligence Unit. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today. The role of Saudi Arabia in the region is evolving. It began under MBS to try to have a very 
assertive or some would say aggressive posture, but that hasn't worked out so well. Uh, and in the the current moment, with a lot of uncertainty about regional security, the future role of the US and the implications of growing geopolitical competition, Saudi Arabia is trying to hedge its bets by engaging in a bit more regional dialogue than it used to. It doesn't want to have conflicts all around it and to have too many problems to deal with at once. If we take a look at Saudi Arabia's regional associates, the UAE is quite busy fighting battles or or at least paying for them across Libya and parts of Africa. Turkey has been broadening its military reach in Libya, Somalia, Central Asia, Syria, and even the Caucasus. And yet, Saudi Arabia, who has a bigger economy than both of them, militarily are pretty much limited to the Gulf at the moment. And anything they've attempted outside of their borders has been a bit of a calamity for them. So why aren't we seeing the same level of adventurism from Riyadh as we are from Tehran or Ankara or Abu Dhabi? Compared to the smaller Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia is a much larger and more complex country and society. So they have a lot more to deal with in terms of internal politics, Uh, whereas some of the smaller Gulf states that are much wealthier and have smaller populations have been able to sideline or ignore domestic politics more and, and focus on that regional adventurism. And I think to a large extent, Saudi Arabia has rather looked up to the UAE in terms of its ability to exert influence internationally. Um, But a lot of that is also through the UAE's soft power, and that's something that Saudi Arabia has eyed with some envy and some emulation. However, the kind of adventurism that you mentioned that has been seen from a number of countries in the Middle East isn't necessarily something that Saudi Arabia does want to emulate now. But even when they had the capital and the will to do so, things haven't gone really well for the Saudis. The Saudis, back in 2017, tried to impose an economic blockade upon Qatar, hoping to curb its freedom of the press through stations like Al Jazeera and stomp its support for Muslim Brotherhood parties across the region. To oversimplify, Muslim Brotherhood parties are usually political organisations who envision government and religion working together in partnership, much closer to the governing styles of Turkey, Egypt or Tunisia, rather than those of the Gulf monarchies, which are usually just monarchical rule. Qatar has been supportive of a number of these groups over the years, and Saudi Arabia imposed heavy sanctions upon them for 43 months. But in the end, Doha came out even stronger than when they went in, and the Saudis were forced to back down and release the sanctions. How can Saudi Arabia hope to position themselves as the leaders of the Middle East if they can barely realign Qatar? The economic embargo of Qatar did seem deeply problematic in many ways from the start because this is a country that is one of the world's major suppliers of natural gas and especially liquefied natural gas. It had many routes to to sell that gas to Asia and to Europe and so on. Uh, So the, the practicalities of bringing Qatar down were always kind of wildly unrealistic. The list of demands that were made of Qatar as well were also wildly unrealistic for anyone with experience of negotiations. There were really maximalist demands asking Qatar to essentially give up having an independent foreign policy and close its best-known TV channel to boot. So certainly this looked like hubris, but... 
at the same time, Saudi Arabia would say that that experience has had some effect, that Qatar is more careful in how it treats its Gulf neighbours, that... Um, you know they that they have been able to have some success by putting pressure on them uh but i think it it may reflect a kind of maximalism that comes from limited foreign policy experience uh on the the part of the leadership of saudi arabia at that time that was only 2 years after king salman came into power and started to power his son there can also be systematic issues that arise in any country where internally nobody wants to say no to the people in charge or in Saudi Arabia increasingly the the one person in charge. So you have seen I think problems with decision making as a result of that and over the last few years the Saudi leadership has had to come to terms with the fact that in international politics you can't tell everybody what to do. You know, previously there was somewhat more space for dissent as long as it was relatively quietly handled. Um, And under MBS, it's become much more autocratic. Well, now let's turn to Saudi Arabia's primary regional competitor, Iran, and how this dynamic between Tehran and Riyadh is shaping Saudi foreign policy. When you read about this rivalry online, there seems to be a lot of people framing this rivalry as a purely sectarian one. You know, the defenders of Sunni Islam against the defenders of Shia Islam. Do you follow that same school of thought? Or do you think it's far more complicated than that? So I think it's a much more realpolitik rivalry between two countries that want to be dominant in the region and have very different views about what the region should look like. Perhaps the positive aspect of it being more political than religious is that at some points they may find some areas of common interest that will allow them to improve the relations. Certainly, the the religious differences can matter, and they definitely get exploited as a kind of tool of rivalry. But something that has been quite interesting about Saudi foreign policy under MBS is that it is less sectarian. It seems to be less religiously driven than in the past, where influential clerics had more well, more influence over Saudi foreign policy. Part of this centralisation of power by MBS has been a weakening of clerics and kind of religious influencers more generally. You know, I think if people see Saudi Arabia as being driven by Wahhabi ideology, etc., this is now really outdated. You know, this has been more of a factor in the the 1980s and 1990s, but it's not at the heart of what's going on now. I think it is much more about power. And Saudi Arabia feels viscerally angry about the role that Iran has in the region. They feel that Iran has been able to enter a lot of Arab countries through the back door, if you like, by building up relations with proxy movements and political parties in a way that has given Iran a huge amount of power in Saudi Arabia's neighbourhood. So before they were angry about Yemen, they were particularly angry about Iraq, where Iran is the dominant foreign power. And Saudi Arabia feels also that, that that Europe and the US have failed to prevent this and therefore have let Saudi Arabia down. And it's caused a huge rift with, with Europe because 
there is a, a deep misunderstanding between Saudi Arabia and Europe about the purposes of the nuclear agreement with Iran. Um, I find it really amazing. I mean, I've been to so many discussions between Saudis and, and Europeans for you know what is now coming up to 20 years of discussion about this nuclear deal. And they are still at loggerheads. They still just see the nuclear deal as two completely different things. So for European countries... The nuclear agreement is a vital piece of arms control, which is seen as the best way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, which is presumably something that most people, most of the players in the region would benefit from. You know, introducing more nuclear weapons into the Middle East has pretty obvious risks. But the Saudis see it in a different way. They don't think it's really about nuclear weapons. They think it's an attempt to bring Iran in from the cold, stop containing Iran. And basically, they have a deep-seated fear that Iran will become the new best friend of America uh, and and Europe to their detriment, and that it will be the dominant power in the region. From the opposite side, how do the Iranians view the Saudis? Does Tehran perceive Riyadh as as much of a threat as Riyadh perceives Tehran to be? The Iranian view of Saudi Arabia is changing, and that is really interesting. So it does seem that in Iran there has been a kind of healthy realisation that they can't just deal with Washington and then try to get Washington to tell Saudi Arabia what to do. They do have to talk directly to the Saudis. But trying to bring together a a sort of 30-something crown prince and an ageing religious leader is actually something extremely difficult. How can those people talk to each other? Currently, they can't really talk to each other. What about on military balance? If the two were to actually engage in a full-scale war, who would be more likely to come out ahead? I mean, this is absolutely key. Basically, Saudi Arabia is militarily weaker than Iran for a whole bunch of reasons, but you know, partly because Iran has... You know, lived through a major interstate war in the 80s, the Iran-Iraq war, which is still in living memory. It has geared itself to the constant fear of attack. You know, so they have a significant army. They have the revolutionary guards who can do all sorts of kind of paramilitary and, and grey zone activities. And they don't have much of an air force because sanctions have really weakened their planes. But they have invested massively in missiles and in drones. And you're seeing now their drones being used in Ukraine, which is something new for Iranian weapons exports to be used in a war outside the region. But this kind of relatively small scale new tech approach to warfare is quite effective because it's evading the kinds of missile defences that countries from Saudi Arabia to Israel to Ukraine have been investing in for uh, a very long time. So if you were looking at a conflict simply between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran has the advantage. It's also a much bigger population. It's nearly three times the size of the Saudi population. So that also helps when you're looking at conventional military. But Saudi Arabia has friends. Iran has fewer friends. Iran doesn't really have any state that it trusts as an ally. With It's got a kind of uncomfortable relationship with Russia. 
And Saudi Arabia traditionally uh, has assumed that Western countries would protect it from any attacks by Iran. The the problem has been that Western countries haven't protected Saudi Arabia when it has been attacked by small-scale missiles that are generally attributed to Iran or by missiles from the Houthis. So for Saudi Arabia, the main security concern is, first of all, what will Iran do? The second one is, what will our allies do to help us? And one of the reasons that you are seeing more contact now between Saudi Arabia and Israel is very much the sense that they see a common enemy in Iran and Israel could be a kind of defence partner at some point. But Saudi Arabia does still have to kind of square that with domestic opinion, which is still pretty uh, critical of Israel. And it's not just the oil facilities, though. Saudi defence analysts have critical worries about the Iranians or the Houthis targeting these Saudi desalination plants. As if they were to get hit with missiles, it would take years to repair the plants, and Saudi water reserves are usually less than 14 days. How do realities like this impact the way Saudi Arabia plays its cards here, with Riyadh knowing that Iran could effectively break the country with just a series of purely conventional medium-range missile strikes on day one of the conflict? Absolutely, that's something they're very worried about. I remember talking to the Saudi oil ministry after a 2009 Al-Qaeda attack on the Abqaiq oil refinery and being told, you know, this terrorist attack was something very rare, but the real problems for us would come if a state attacked the oil facilities and the desalination facilities. So, you know, that was 13 years ago, before this current lot of tensions with with Iran. It's certainly something they are acutely aware of, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are prepared for it. And I think they are trying to send quite clear messages to Iran that they do not want to be sucked in if there is a, a regional war between potentially Israel and Iran. They want to keep channels of communication open with Iran. They don't want to be hit. If we were to see that, though, and the Iranians were to hit 60 to 70% of these desal plants on the first day, what is the actual Saudi response? Have they got anything planned on paper to be able to respond to this? So I don't know. I'm sure that they will have people that look hard at water security and also at food security, but there is a reluctance to get into details of preparedness in any public way, because generally there's a tendency to want to avoid frightening the population by sort of talking about some of these scenarios. It's no secret that the main reason that Saudi Arabia has so much influence and sway in the West is because of its oil supply as the EU and the US buy huge quantities of oil and gas from the Saudis. If Iran were to liberalise, though, and rejoin the Western sphere, allowing it to sell its vast amounts of oil and gas into the Western markets in direct competition with the Saudis, what would that do to Riyadh's geopolitical leverage that it currently has with the West? This comes back to the issues of rivalry between them, that at the end of the day, you know, looking at this... Saudi-Iranian rivalry for a very long time. I find it quite difficult to work out what Saudi Arabia really wants Iran to be. They don't really want Iran to be regional power that is backing religious militias all over the region. But it also seems like they don't necessarily want an Iran which is 
Western-oriented, democratic or economically thriving. Now, I don't think that they actually see that as being on the cards, but we can look back at the time before the Islamic Republic, when Iran was uh, ruled by the Shah, when it was on very good terms with the US and Israel, and Saudi Arabia still had a massive problem with it because it was a larger neighbour that wanted to dominate the Gulf area in Saudi eyes. And they were very unhappy with that as well. So that could be a guide to the future too. It's very unpredictable what will happen with Iran domestically. But there is also quite a chance that Iran will eventually go through a transition. But by that time, the world will not be as interested in its oil. You know, that time is, is running out as well. Which brings us to the pretty central question analysts have around this region of the world. After Trump tore up the JCPOA, the agreement preventing the Iranians from acquiring a nuclear weapon, the Iranians then decided to turn back towards the production of a nuclear weapon, as the agreement stopping them doing this was just torn up. If the Iranians do look like they're about to acquire a nuclear weapon, do you think that will push the Saudis to do the same? And if the Saudis do want to go down that road, what do you think the American response will be? Surely Washington wouldn't punish the Saudis the same way they punish the Iranians. I mean, this is an absolutely vital question because I think for many observers in the region, the JCPOA is at best on life support and quite likely to, to collapse. And the Saudi sort of talking points for quite a long time, including under the Trump administration, have been, let's get rid of the JCPOA, but force Iran into a much better deal that gives more concessions on regional policy and deals with Iran's missiles and so forth. But that is an illusion. It's not clear how the US would magically bring about a much better agreement when it's actually struggling with leverage in Iran to restore the, the existing one. So they do increasingly have to confront the possibility that Iran will either become a threshold nuclear power or acquire a nuclear bomb. What would stop them from going down that route themselves? The US might object, but actually, if you're looking at it from Saudi Arabia, or if I'm looking at it, I'm not sure what the US really has to dissuade them. Yes, there is international law. Saudi Arabia is a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. But at the same time, we are seeing international law being challenged and broken in, in a lot of contexts. So work on these kinds of issues has to start now as Saudi Arabia tries to develop its nuclear power. There could be ways for suppliers of nuclear fuel to make their supplies conditional on Saudi Arabia, opening up more to the International Atomic Energy Agency and sort of demonstrating that its nuclear program really is for peaceful use. Uh, there's also always been a question of whether Saudi Arabia might be able to lean on Pakistan and acquire nuclear technology from Pakistan. I mean, perhaps the most benign scenario would be that there's kind of nuclear ambiguity in the region, as Israel already has, that Iran may be getting close to the th threshold later on of having a nuclear weapon, but doesn't do something like test one. And then you might also have Saudi Arabia sending signals that we might have one too, but again, not actually demonstrating or using them. But even that is quite optimistic. I think there is a really high risk that nuclear proliferation is going to extend across the Middle East.
So the Saudis have a doomsday-like event pointed right at them on their doorstep, knowing that they could lose their water supply on day one of a conflict. And they've already seen small-scale versions of these attacks, with Houthis using drones to target Saudi oil facilities. And their one peace of mind, their big reliance, that Uncle Sam would always come to the rescue, is increasingly a bit in doubt. So what options does Riyadh have? Will they cozy up further to Washington to try and convince Uncle Sam to be more invested into the Saudi security? Will they crawl over to the Emiratis and try to form closer ties with them, hoping to use their money and military expertise to protect them? Or will they seek new guarantors in Moscow or Beijing? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest. Part 4. The Company You Keep Saudi Arabia does see itself as a regional power, one that has soft power through its religious influence as custodian of the two holy mosques. But Saudi Arabia doesn't have the hard power positioning to take on regional uh, security challenges coming primarily from Iran. Saudi Arabia has long uh, relied on the U.S. to provide it with security. The Saudi government has long believed that the U.S. would defend Saudi Arabia in the face of any attack. And in 2019, Saudi Arabia's oil facilities in Abrib and Fkhores were attacked by cruise missiles and drones coming from the Islamic Republic. And in this case, the U.S. government did not directly defend Saudi Arabia. And this has sort of altered its uh, security posture and made it feel very vulnerable today in the Middle East. Sanam Vakil is the Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, where she leads the project work on Iran and Gulf Arab dynamics. She's also the James Anderson Professional Lecturer in the Middle East Studies Department at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And before these appointments, Sanam was also the Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies at SAIS Washington, as well as serving as a research associate at the Council of Foreign Affairs, providing analysis to the World Bank's Middle East and North Africa Department. And we're thrilled to have on the program today. Trust between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia has definitely waxed and waned. And despite a relatively better relationship between Washington and Riyadh under the Trump administration, uh, there were also fissures over Washington's call for burden sharing. There was also uh, not a lot of confidence in the Trump administration. And so when the facilities were attacked, uh, the Saudi government did not want uh, to experience blowback should the U.S. come to the defense of Saudi Arabia in any sort of offensive way. Um, At the same time, though, the kingdom was aggrieved that the U.S. uh, did not deploy any military to show the Iranians that those attacks were crossing a red line and unjustified. So it's from there that U.S.-Saudi relations have become frayed and U.S.-Iranian relations have also uh, very much shifted. And these tensions have been further exacerbated, though, when just recently the Saudis announced a reduction in the amount of oil they would produce over the June to December quarters, with members of the Saudi administration even explicitly stating the goal of this being to push up petrol prices right before the US midterms in the hopes of hurting incumbent Democratic candidates. And all of this comes just months after Riyadh began pumping huge amounts of money into Russian oil companies like Luke Oil to keep them afloat after the Europeans had sanctioned them in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. When the Russians were hurting, the Saudis came to the rescue. 
Do these kind of moves from Riyadh signal a shifting camp for the Saudis, or is it just MBS seeing what's out there? Because of frustrations with Washington and this very clear sense that the U.S. is prioritizing geopolitical challenges with Russia and China and deprioritizing the Middle East, the Saudi government, alongside other American regional partners, have taken to diversifying their strategic ties. And this growth in Russian-Saudi relations is a reflection of that diversification. There are also interests, um, at least from the Saudi side, in engaging with Russia to manage regional conflicts. Russia has a military and strategic presence in Syria, and the Russians also have relatively strong ties with the Iranians. So maintaining engagement with Russia also opens the back door to managing some of these conflict areas and sources of tension for Riyadh. Well, on the subject of Syria, what are Riyadh's aims for the Syrian conflict? Well, the Saudis initially hoped that Assad's regime would fall and more Arab-friendly leadership would come to power. To date, Saudi Arabia has not restored ties, uh, diplomatic ties with the Assad regime and still is frustrated by uh, Iran's influence in Syria. Uh, So I think strategically, Riyadh would like to see those linkages broken, but doesn't currently have a strategy uh, to make that happen. Another player in Syria that Riyadh has become increasingly cold with is Turkey. And these schisms are only being exacerbated with Turkey and Qatar entering into more and more trade and security deals together. But why does Saudi Arabia see competition with Ankara in the first place? This relationship has definitely waxed and waned and been tied to personal leadership. Saudi Arabia has seen Erdogan and Erdogan's Turkey as a regional competitor. Erdogan has come up through a political Islamic vision for the region and has supported political Islamic groups around the Middle East. And this has been seen to be a challenge by the Saudi government, particularly through the Arab uprisings that began in 2011. And both countries found themselves in an ideological regional contest about what model of governance would be better for the region. Erdogan supporting Islamic groups and seeing political Islam as having a place in governance in the region, while Saudi Arabia and the UAE have not seen the Muslim Brotherhood or political Islamic groups as uh, reliable models of governance. The other really interesting shifting dynamic here is the one between the Saudis and the Israelis that whilst, yes, the two of them have been sharing intel and working together behind the scenes for years, it's only been relatively recently that we've seen this public congruence between the two, with flights starting to resume and deals being done between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So where do you see the relationship between these two going over the next few years? The hope was that these public steps that included flights and permissions for Israeli Arabs to fly 
to the kingdom directly to conduct their Hajj and the transfer of Egyptian islands to Saudi control, which needed Israeli approval in the Red Sea. The hope was that these moves would be first steps leading towards a normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And there has long been hope and suspicion that Mohammed bin Salman would be the Saudi leader that that would take the leap and recognize Israel publicly. I think that conclusion might be a bit further away, A, because MBS is quite preoccupied with Vision 2030. Uh, domestic uh, dynamics are very much sort of guiding his policy priorities. Secondly, without progress on the issue of Palestine and Palestinian negotiations, it will be harder for Saudi Arabia to normalize with Israel without obtaining something for the Palestinians in return. But finally, I would say normalization with Saudi Arabia, I think, is now going to be further complicated by the re-election of Benjamin Netanyahu, who will be likely to be in coalition with right-wing Israeli parties that are quite anti-Arab and, of course, very directly anti-Palestinian. And, and that optically and practically uh, will make it very difficult for any Arab or Muslim country especially Saudi Arabia, to publicly normalize with th this group of leaders in power in Israel. With the current state of domestic politics within the United States, I can't see a reinstatement of the JCPOA between Iran and the United States anytime soon. But if it were to actually happen, how would that shift the equations for the Saudis? Saudi-Iranian relations are complicated by structural distortions in the relationship. This is a relationship that has been tense for over four decades, has had very small windows of cooperation, and that was primarily in the decade of the 1990s. And they remain tense today, really because of these the asymmetries. So let me describe what the asymmetries are. Iran is seen to be a regional threat to Saudi Arabia. It has a regional-based program to assert Iranian influence beyond its borders that is destabilizing, um, transfers lethal aid to multiple actors across the Middle East, including on the Saudi border in Yemen. Iran is seen as Riyadh's primary regional threat. The problem is that with less direct, reliable support from the United States, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the defensive capability to manage threats from Iran. And here lies that principal asymmetry. Saudi Arabia has limited tools to push back. The Iranians, on the other hand, are not particularly threatened by their Gulf Arab neighbors to the south, including Saudi Arabia. Their strategic threats emanate primarily from their perceptions of the U.S. and American intentions vis-a-vis -vis Iran, which the Iranian government sees as destabilizing. And secondary threat is the state of Israel. So Iran's orientation, definition of its strategic threat perceptions are completely different from that of Saudi Arabia's. So is Tehran under the assumption that Saudi Arabia couldn't strike into Iran if they wanted to? I think, yes, Tehran does not think that Saudi Arabia 
has a capability to pursue sustained strikes against Iran. Of course, Saudi Arabia could strike Iran, but it's the perpetuation of a military conflict that the Iranians are confident that the Saudis could not maintain. And the Saudis have been consistently trying to bolster their defense and offensive capabilities, but haven't been able to develop a robust military posture, as we have seen from the war in Yemen, for example, where Despite U.S. and British support, despite collaboration with the Emiratis, they haven't been able to unseat or push back against the Houthis. With all this putting Saudi Arabia into a pretty precarious position, the Saudis are likely going to have to make some pretty serious leaps forward in technology and do it pretty quickly. We have seen MBS make some pretty grand promises of eco-cities in the desert and carbon-neutral kingdoms, but do you think you'll actually be able to deliver that? Where do you see Saudi Arabia in 10 years? I think MBS is deeply committed to Vision 2030 as a platform for growth, for diversification, and for his new social contract that will legitimize his leadership in the kingdom. So I think that is going to be the guiding principle and vision for Saudi Arabia. And in that context, I expect Saudi Arabia to continue to diversify its relations, to develop uh, stronger multinational relationships as well. But at the same time, it will continue to double down and strengthen its ties with Washington. Vision 2030 is going to require the Saudi state to remain invested and committed to its diversification and privatization objectives. And should it remain committed, it is expected to take about a generation for the Saudi state to make this transition and to develop capacity so that it has people in place to take jobs and to work in the private sector to lead Saudi Arabia's diversified economy into the future. When we take a look at the Saudi scorecard, things don't look too good. Looking at a few issues, they tried competing with the Emirates for liberalization, trying to keep happy and improve things for the next generation. But as MBS is finding at the moment, every step he takes down that road further alienates the princes and citizens who were told up until less than a decade ago that these harsh religious measures were the will of God, and that by you exchanging your rights and liberties, well, it'll all pay off later. And these people are expected to do a complete cultural 180 on that because of new leadership. If we examine when the Saudis tried competing with the Turks for the spreading of political ideology, we can see that Saudi Arabia's attempts in limiting political Islam haven't been particularly successful, and that Riyadh has watched Iraq, Libya, Lebanon, and Tunisia all pick Turkey's way of doing things, rather than the Saudis. Saudi Arabia even tried competing with Yemen militarily, and what should have been an easy fight ended up being an absolute disaster for the Saudi military, as they not only shook up the beehive of Yemeni resentment toward the Saudis, but also demonstrated to the world how poorly coordinated and trained the Saudi military was. And if Tehran had had any worries, about engaging with the Saudi military on the battlefield, as after all they were using American state-of-the-art equipment. After observing the military disasters in Yemen, I think Tehran probably feels far more confident now. Even when Saudi Arabia tried competing with Qatar economically, even on that front with their gargantuan oil wealth, tiny little Qatar outlasted them, 
and forced Saudi Arabia to walk back their sanctions, further hurting their credibility. This nation, who is the largest producer of oil anywhere on the globe, whose west coast is next to the trading choke point of the Suez Canal, and whose east coast is near the trading choke point of the Strait of Hormuz, a nation whose stability is probably in the top five most important in the world, couldn't beat Qatar economically, Yemen militarily, or the Turks for political influence. This is a nation whose stability is top priority for the global economic system. And the entire weight of this responsibility now sits upon the shoulders of a 37-year-old man who by all accounts has surrounded himself with advisors who would never dare question him. Who says geopolitics has no effect on your daily life? Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. It was a pretty long one to put together, but one we've wanted to do for a while. Now, I know many of you may be wondering why we didn't bring up the big elephant in the room with this country, which is what happens to Saudi Arabia and the other petrostates like Angola and Algeria? What happens to those countries if we start to transition away from oil? Well, the reason we didn't answer that question here today is that it's far too big a question to be able to fit in with everything else, and that to tackle it properly would require an entire episode on its own. And if that sounds like a great topic for an episode to you, well, I don't want to give away too much, but I think you might really enjoy episode five of our five-part mini-series, The Green Line, focusing on the geopolitics of near-term climate change. In the meantime, though, if you want to keep up to date with everything we've got going on here at The Red Line, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at The Red Line Pod, or you can follow me on Twitter on the handle at MikeElliottOz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money each week to help myself and the team keep this thing going. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Matt J, who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible because of supporters like Matt, who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep the show going, and because of which get access to transcripts, Patreon-only videos, Q&As, and more. So this episode focusing on the geopolitics of Saudi Arabia, all thanks to you, Matt. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and a 40-year rivalry by Kim Gaddis for a look at the long-term tension between Riyadh and Tehran. The second is Iran and Saudi Arabia for a look at the potential pathways between the two countries. And the third is The Squeeze by Tom Bauer for a look at the volatility built into the global oil markets, as well as the influence of OPEC, something I'm sure we'll do an entire episode on at some point soon. I want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, Helen Lackner, Roby Barrett, Jane Kinnamont, and Sanam Vakil. All of you were absolutely fantastic to work with on this one. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Daniela Zavella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Troy Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. And if you are interested in joining this amazing team of writers and analysts, we are currently opening up a round of applications for additional writing staff here at the show, the details for which will all be on our website. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight, and the Green Line will be back next week. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. 
For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.